be in John chapter 13, starting in verse 28. We're going to complete this scene here in the upper room. Or the upper rooms, uh, the events are not done completely, but um, this scene where Jesus has said that one of them there will betray him. And Peter asked John to ask him. Because we talked about today that John would have been on his right as they were laying on their left side and they were, that was the posture and the positioning of this feast as John would have been on his right. He would have been able to lean into Jesus and ask him, who is it? Who is it that will betray you? And Jesus answered, it says, it's the one who dips the morsel and gives it to him. And then he gives it to Judas. We had discussed today that in this custom, in this culture, that the one on the right would have been the one that the host trusted, which would have been John, obviously. John would have been the one who was there with him at the, at the foot of the cross, the only disciple, and the one that Jesus trusted to um, take care of his mother after his death. And then we talked about on the left it, that it would have been the seat of honor, the place of honor that the host would designate that the, the one who he deemed to be the special guest or the, the, the honorary guest of that feast would have been on the left of the host. And that would have been the one who in this custom and culture would have been the first one to receive the bread known as the sop. And we see that that would have been Judas. And we discussed how Judas would have had the seat of honor that night as his events would be the first domino of this evening that would lead to Christ being crucified. And without that crucifixion that we have no hope. Judas meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And we had also mentioned that Judas had already struck this deal of betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver, the, the price of a slave, and he was waiting for the opportune time to go about this betrayal. And Jesus has ultimate sovereignty over timing. And although Judas was waiting for the right time in his mind, that time was determined by the sovereign hand of God. As he said, what you do, do quickly. As his hour has come and the time for his betrayal is at hand. And this is where we left off and we pick up in verse 28. We read down to verse 38 as we complete chapter 13. So let's read it. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what re purpose... He had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is, this, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I had said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, 
Where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay your lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Powerful verses that end this chapter. We go back to this upper room and we put ourselves there and we find the drama that we see in this story. So before we unpack these verses, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. You are holy, holy, holy. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, including time, events in history and events in our life, that you were never late, that you were never early, but perfectly on time. And Father, as we come to these verses tonight, I pray that you would help us. Lord, that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that these words would jump off the page and pierce our hearts. And that we could see you more deeply and more clearly than we ever have. And Father, I pray for boldness. Lord, I pray that we would never be like Peter. To where we would deny you. Where we would become weak in our stance for you. And deny you before men. Our Father, we ask for help. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had talked about the seating arrangement this morning, and I think it's important here because we see that if Peter is on the opposite side of, of the table and he's motioning to, to John because John would have been on his right, and he would have said, John, ask him who it is. Who's going to betray him? Jesus gives the answer. The Bible tells us he gives the answer. It's the one who I dip the bread, the morsel of bread, and whom I give it to. He gives that answer, but apparently in all the commotion that no one heard this or there was some confusion here because even after Jesus says this, look at the response. It says, now, none of, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. What was this that he was saying? What you do, do quickly. So they didn't hear the first part, maybe in all the chaos of, is it I? Who is it? Or maybe it's because Jesus had said it in maybe not an overwhelmingly loud voice and it would have been just those who were near him. Maybe Judas heard it as he would have been facing towards Judas. But no one knows why he said, do what you do, do it quickly. And now we come to this point. Why don't they know why he said this? And why do they think that Judas is leaving? Well, let's look at what they think some of the options may be. In verse 29, it tells us, For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast. So we know that, that Judas is in charge of the money. We know he's been entrusted with this because they have no reason to believe he hasn't been. A, 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 a thief or a robber, we know that he has been. Scripture will tell us that he has been robbing along this way. Not just here, but throughout his time of having the money box, he had 
done this. He was a thief. He had pilfered in it. And we're going to read a verse that tells that. So they think because he's the one that has in charge of the money box that maybe Jesus is sending him out to buy some supplies for that evening. That's what they may think. That's what they do think. Some of them do think that. And then we see that another option, another uh, possible reason they believe that Judas was being sent out, that he should give something to the poor. Uh, we find a verse that we've read already in John chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, but this is this story with Mary. You remember when Mary had taken this costly perfume and, and she had it and poured it on Christ and began to, to worship Him there. We see this scene. It says this, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of, of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. His actions look great on the outside. He looks like he's wanting to give to the poor, but... God knows the heart. God knows the motives. God knows who he is. And he may fool everyone that is around him in that group of men, but he does not fool the eternal God. He does not fool the omniscient God who knows the heart of all men. And he had been pilfering all along, but he had hid his hypocrisy so well. He had hid his betrayal so well that they think he's going to do noble things. As Jesus says, do what you do, do it quickly. He was not doing either of those. He was going to go to the leaders here and he was going to set this thing in motion. But they don't know that at this point. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, and that is from a heart of pure motives, a heart that has been changed. God knows he was a worker of lawlessness, even though he hit it very well. In verse 30, it says this. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. So put yourself again here in this scene. Jesus says someone's going to betray him. Jesus gives the answer to who it is. They don't hear the answer to who it is. They see Judas leave the room. They think that he's either going to give to the poor or get supplies. And this is the scene. This is where we find ourselves in this story. He received the morsel because Jesus said to whom he gives the, this morsel that is dipped, that will be the one who betrays me. And he leaves. Why does he leave immediately? Why doesn't he linger? Because Jesus tells him what you do, do it now. Do it quickly. We don't have seconds to waste. This is the perfect time. Go now. And he does. We don't see any hesitation. He goes immediately. And we find an interesting choice of words here. When he goes out, it was night. We do know it was night. Their days ran differently. And it was dark. It was night outside. That just seems like a very obvious thing. It was night. 
But why else does John put that in there? I believe there's also some symbolism here that we find. Not only is it physically and literally night, but I do believe that this can also point to a passage of Scripture we find in Luke chapter 22. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. This is going to be the scene where Judas is going to betray Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. Remember what Acts said today. He was a guide to those who he would betray. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what, he was, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them this, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. This would be Peter. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Can we just stop there? You talk about man's inability to come to the things of God, to see the truths of God outside of the sovereign hand of God. They see him raise Lazarus from the dead, and they don't believe. They come to get him. They literally see this ear cut off with a sword, fall to the ground, he picks up the ear, he puts it back on the man, and heals him in front of their eyes. He also is going to say, that we know from the other account of the gospel, to where they come, he declares that he is ego I me, and they all fall down in his presence. I believe it's John who will say that a little later, chapter 19 possibly. Here he just heals a man's ear that's been cut off, like it's never even been cut off. And they still hated him. They still didn't believe in him. And they were still going to arrest him. Again, this is all, it shows man's inability and the hardness of our heart outside of the sovereign hand and the mercy of God for us to see the truths of the gospel. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you not come out with swords? Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me. Why? Why do you think they didn't lay a hand on him all the times they were around him in the temple? Because his hour had not yet come. But look what he says here. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. I believe that he tells us here that it was night Literally, but I believe it was also symbolic that the hour of darkness had come. This would be the hour where that he would die and the sky would turn black and dark as he's laying on the sins of his people upon him. This is the hour where the power of darkness will be shown. So I think that not only is it literal, I think it's symbolic of this hour of darkness that is coming all being led, being started, initiated by this act of betrayal on this evening by Judas. And then in verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, and Here we find now it's just the eleven. Now it's just him and his, the eleven there. And he says, Now 
is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. And here we've already seen this. We found this in John chapter 12. We found that it is in the cross that the Son of Man will be glorified. It will be through the cross that the Father will be glorified. It is this glory that we find in this hour, which looks to the world that darkness reigns and has the ultimate victory, but it is not. It is in this moment where the Son of God is hanging for His people in complete obedience to the Father. It is there that the only acceptable, true, and perfect sacrifice, the Son of Man, is glorified. It would be the cross that he would have to suffer and endure to ascend as the Son of Man and enter the glory of the kingdom and return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. Me and Perry have joked recently, and it's quite true that it seems like every sermon we come to, we find ourselves saying, well, we find in John 17... Chris even mentioned it today. It's this high priestly prayer. It is through the cross that the Son will be glorified. It will be through the cross that the Father is glorified. And it will be through this suffering and this cross that will be required for Him to ascend to the Ancient of Days, back to the glory that He had with the Father before the world was. And we see this prayer of this glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And we find that in John 17, can we? Go there one more time today. In verses one through five, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. There's the glory in the cross that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What a powerful scene. What a powerful set of verses that we find here. That he humbled himself. In the incarnation, and he came. But it was through the cross that he would be glorified. The Father would be glorified. He would ascend. He would reign beside the Ancient of Days, and he would have the glory that he had with his Father before the world was. He's glorified in the cross. To the world, it looks like defeat. But the Son and the Father, the Godhead is glorified in the cross. And that hour is here. It, this is what he's saying. It, this is the time. This is what is happening. And then we find, we find something that shifts a little bit in verse 34. Look at it with me. We find that in verse 34, he begins to set his teaching, he begins to set his words on instruction after he, he leaves. He's telling them that his time is coming to an end, that he's not going to be with them much longer. And now what we're going to see in these next few chapters, he's going to begin to give them instruction of what to expect and how to live when he's gone. 
we're going to find that he's going to say that I'm going to uh, send the Holy Spirit, the, fa- the Father, and I, we're going to send the Spirit to you, and it's to your advantage that I go. And the Holy Spirit will lead you. He'll guide you. He'll bring you into truth. And he begins to turn his attention to how they're to act and what to expect after he leaves. So there's this shift here. And he begins to tell them what is the first characteristic that he's looking for. What is the characteristic that will determine and show the world that they are his disciples? Well, let's read what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for one another. That's what he begins to teach. And we see some interesting wordage here. He says, a new commandment I give you. But is the commandment to love one another a new commandment? No, it's not. We go to Leviticus 19 and we see this in verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We've gotten instruction to tell us to love in the Old Testament. We've got instruction to love in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. He says, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So what is different about this? What is the difference in loving your neighbor as yourself? What do we see that he's teaching here? Well, what made this distinct was the kind of love, this kind of love was modeled by God's love. He says, love even as I have loved. Well, how does Christ love? How did he love? It said he loved those who were his. He loved them to the end. He loved them sacrificially. He laid his life down for them. This is what he's beginning to teach. Remember, he washed the feet and he says, this is an example for you that you're to, to be there and serve one another with humility. Love one another above yourself. Love like I love. Love sacrificially. Love to the point of death. Love like I've loved you. That's what is added into this. This speaks of sacrificial love as Christ has demonstrated. The other difference we see is that love your neighbor is changed to love one another. The love towards one another speaks primarily of this love that is expressed among the brethren, among the believers. This is where it's primarily shown because he says, if you love one another as I have loved you, this will be the sign to all the world that you're my disciples. That's of great importance to the uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, because as he's getting ready to leave, He says, this is the new commandment. If you want people to see that you are truly my disciples, you will love. You will love your brethren. You will love sacrificially. You will love to the point of death. You will love as I have loved. And this will be how they know that you are my disciples. And this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. To love like this is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit And then we come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, which I believe parallels this very well. 
It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This is done by the working of the Holy Spirit. We are to love the brethren, one another, even as Christ is loved. Now, when I read that and you hear that, what do you begin to think about? How horribly we failed in that. Do you know who destroys people? Do you know who destroys the brethren more than anybody else? Other Christians. That's what happens. We don't show love sacrificially. We're too busy complaining about them. We don't show love sacrificially. We're too busy running them down the road. Looking for every speck in their eye. Remember when we talked in the Sermon on the Mount? But remove, not removing the plank that is in ours. He said, this is how you know that you're, they're my disciples. Because you love one another, even as I've loved you. This is out of the words of Christ. How horribly have we failed in this? How miserably have we failed in this? God help us. God help us to love one another, to strengthen one another, to be there for one another. This is what we are to do. It's interesting that this is where he begins. This is the new commandment, love even as I've loved. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. How do you think the world looks at Christians? As we are destroying each other, slandering one another, hurting one another. What witness is that to a world that is broken? It's not a witness at all. It's actually a disobedience to the word of God. This is a powerful verse. And this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this in your flesh. You can't do it in your flesh. This is how you know you've passed from death to life. Because you love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This is what he begins to teach them. And that message still rings true for us today. Still rings true for us today. And then he says in verse 36, Simon Peter, here comes Peter. Well, let me, let me, so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. What's interesting in that verse is this. Jesus is getting ready to die. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is then going to ascend to the Father. And he tells Peter, you can't follow me there yet. You're not going to die yet. You're not going to the Father yet. You can't follow me yet, but you will. That's the same with all Christians. We will eventually be with the Father. We'll eventually be where he's at, but not yet. We all will die in our due time. But what's interesting here that's even deeper about Peter is this. He says, where I'm going, you cannot go. But one day you will. I think there's some prophetic word in that from the lips of our Lord because it would be Christ who would die by crucifixion. And we know that history will tell us that it was Peter who died by being crucified upside down. Peter, you can't come where I'm coming yet. 
but one day you will. I believe that it could mean that he's going to follow him to death, even death on a cross, and then he's going to follow him to the glories of heaven, but not yet. Peter, you will. And we find that later on in the, in the gospel according to John where he tells Peter, he says, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to go, but there will be a time when your hand, someone leads you to where you don't want to go, and that place is death. Eventually, it would be on a cross. And here I believe Jesus given a clue of how he will die. Peter says, where are you going? Where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Put yourself in the upper room that night, just for a moment. Judas is gone. They don't know why. One of them is going to betray Jesus. They've heard that from him. Jesus says, I'm going to leave soon, and here's how they're going to know that you're my disciples. You love one another. Where I'm going, you can't go. Peter says, I'll go. I'll go wherever you go. Let me follow you, even if it means let me die. And Jesus looks at Peter. Just put yourself here. How many times have you and I been that bold in our confession that we would never betray Christ? We would never be weak in our bold stance before Christ, whether it be at work or family. I'll never not stand up for you. Peter says, I'll die for you. And Jesus looks right at him and says these words. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. What do you think Peter felt or thought in that moment? Where the sovereign Lord looks him in the eye and says, will you die for me? You're going to deny me three times. He makes a bold statement here, willing to lay down his life for the Lord. And it would be the Lord who would lay his life down for Peter. However, Judas betrays Christ. But what does Peter do? Jesus prays personally for Peter. We find that in John 17 where Jesus prays for those whom the Father has given him. The the immediate context is that chapter starts out as his disciples, but then he goes later and he prays for all who would believe, as Chris said today. Listen to what Jesus says to Simon in the same upper room, but Luke gives us a different or more detailed account of this conversation. In Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, and let me draw your attention to how it starts out. Simon, Simon. He says his name twice. Speaking of that intimacy, speaking of that love. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission. Let us us not overlook that. 
I believe it was Martin Luther who said that even the devil is God's devil. That Satan is asking for permission. He did the same thing to Job. It was God who granted that permission. It is God who is sovereign even over the devil. I love that. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What an intimate Statement that he makes to Simon, 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 that, that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But listen to what I've done for you. I've prayed for you. I've given him permission. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And let me tell you this. There's no greater thing that the son of God could pray for you. And that's what he does to all his believers. We find that again in John 17. He is praying for his elect in John 17. That as the moments of the cross are coming, he is praying for them. What an, what an intimate, amazing scene that we have here. And then he says, but he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Peter was weak in this moment and he showed a lack of courage. He showed a lack of boldness, but his faith would not ultimately fail as he was forgiven and restored by Christ. Christ was praying for him. We can stumble, we can fall, but we are held by the arms of the good shepherd to which we will not have our faith ultimately fail. It's truly by the hands of the sovereign God that he holds on to us, praying here for Peter. And Peter would deny him. We see this, we know this. And what's an interesting verse to me is that we find that when Peter denies Christ, he's close enough up there that when the rooster crows, that it, it, one of the gospel accounts says that Jesus then turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that? Here he says, Peter, will you die for me? You're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. You will return and you will strengthen the brother. You will show that love to the brother. You will feed the sheep is what he's going to tell them at John 21 at the end of this gospel account. But Jesus looks at Peter right after the rooster crows. And I wonder what that look would have been. If someone would have denied you, what would the look you give them? Would it be, told you so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew it. Couldn't do it, could you? Couldn't be bold enough, could you? I don't believe that's the look that Jesus gave Peter. I believe he went back to what he told him. Peter, you're broken right now. I get it. But I've prayed for you. And you will turn back. You will come and be restored. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not ultimately fail. It's not over, Peter. I'm holding you, Peter. It's not over. 
And after the resurrection, the word goes out. He says, go tell the disciples. And then one person gets mentioned by name specifically. Go tell the disciples and go tell Peter. He prayed for him. His work was not yet done. He was held by the arms of the sovereign God. We're getting to that high priestly prayer in John 17. That when he holds you, he prays for you. He intercedes for you. You are eternally secure. We may fall, we may stumble, but God will not let go of his. Peter is restored. And the first thing he tells him to do, go tend the sheep. Go work. Go love one another. Go advance my word. And let me draw your attention. We won't get into John 14 just yet. But look what the context is to the start of John 14. Even though there was not a John 14, Jesus tells, uh, the scripture tells us that in verse 21 of chapter 13, he became troubled in his spirit, knowing that one would betray him. Judas then begins to leave, leaves and goes to betray Christ. Peter is told that he will deny Christ three times. In chapter 14, verse 1 says this. He looks at the 11. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see, that gives us great context, doesn't it? Chapter 14, if we read it alone, looks like he just, hey, don't be troubled. Everything's going great. Don't be troubled. He says, don't let your heart be troubled in the middle of the upper room. As one has went to betray him and one has been told that he will deny him. That our heart cannot, doesn't have to be troubled even in the middle of chaos of this world. And there's a reason for that. Because we don't look for the here and now. We look for the eternal home that he is going to prepare right now. This is the scene in the upper room. What a few minutes has transpired. Judas is gone to betray him. Peter's told that he'll deny him. And he gives the command, love one another, even as I have loved you. As Jesus is nearing his departure from his disciples and from the world, he instructs them that the mark that will let the world know that they are his disciples is their love toward one another. The same is true for Christians today as God's word does not change. Christians should be the most merciful, gracious, forgiving, patient, and loving people as we have had the most mercy, grace, patience, and love shown upon us. And let us follow Christ in love as he is loved. And then here comes the challenge for this evening. We look at Peter and we say, Peter, oh, Peter, Peter, how in the world? How could you do what you did? You saw all these things, Peter. You just saw Jesus put, upon the, put the ear back to which you cut off. 
you saw him do all these miracles. And Peter, you're going to come to the point where you deny him in front of people when it gets hard? How could you do that, Peter? Have we ever been like Peter? Have we ever caved in our boldness, in our witness for far less than death at stake? Do we claim that we would be willing to lay down our life for him? But at the first moment of opposition, difficulty, persecution, we deny and we run. So tonight, let us not be proud and let us not be boastful. But let us pray that God would give us boldness and strength that wherever we go, whether it be to our place of work, whether it be in front of our family, whether it be in this world, wherever we go, let us pray for boldness in our stance, in our witness for Christ, so that at no time, so that no time in our life from this point on, that we would ever hear what Peter heard, the rooster crow. Let us never hear that. Let that be our goal. To be bold. To spread the truth. Has there been times in your life if you would have listened closely? You would have heard a rooster in the background crowing. God help us. Let us pray that we love one another even as God has loved us. And let us tonight pray for boldness so that we would never hear the rooster crow in our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that we find in your word. And Father, I pray that these words would pierce our souls and our hearts. And Lord, we would be in awe of you more. We would be more bold for you. And Lord, that you would just sanctify us. That you would help us to grow in our walk with you. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I hope the prayer of everyone here tonight is that we would lay our life down for you. Pick up our cross even to the point of death. But Father, so many times we waver in that. We waver in that boldness. And Father, we pray for help. We pray for strength. And Father, there's been many times where we failed you. But Father, we know that you've prayed for us. We know that you're not letting us go. And Lord, you forgive us. And we thank you for that. So, Father, we just want to be obedient to you in all things, in all aspects of our life. And, Lord, tonight as we leave, let us feel the seriousness of the command you gave them in that upper room as it still goes out to us today. Let us love one another, even as you've loved us. And it is in this that the world will know 
who your disciples are. We ask these things and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.